0: A podcast 1 production Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media agency, and tech sectors, and in this podcast, we will cover all the global and local developments you need to know this week. As we do every week, We have a guest, uh, John Bradshaw, a former marketer with Mars, Diageo, Virgin Mobile and Lion. He's with me today. He's the principal at Brand Traction, a marketing capabilities firm. And we're going to cover first up uh, this week's intelligence briefs. So intelligence briefs are all the things that you need to know that have happened globally and locally this week in a snappy summary. So, John, first up, a very interesting and something close to your heart, tech sector's youth bias is fake. A new study from the Northwestern University's uh, Kellogg School of Business has basically done a study that says the fastest growing new tech companies are run by 45-year-olds plus and that 50-year-old entrepreneurs are nearly twice as likely to have a runaway success as a 30-year-old. A lot of myth-busting to go on there, both for the technology sector, very young focus, and our own industry where it's very young. Your thoughts, John, sitting across from me with Gray here.
1: Yeah, well, as a 50-year-old man, this is a a very welcome new piece of research. But like all of these things, I think it masks a much more subtle and complex story. Um, It does feel a bit like in marketing there is a bit of a bias towards youth over kind of age and wisdom that might be worth rebalancing really conscious of my own confirmation bias there though paul yes
0: but we 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 constantly see this in the in the in the media and in advertising industries it's it's all young lots of young people and not so many middle aged and onward why um well i suspect
1: and i suspect this is something we might come back to throughout the whole of this podcast paul is that the answer's got nothing to do with young people disruptive and old people being stuck in their ways and got more to do with the fact that young people are cheaper than old people and as this industry focuses more on efficiency rather than effectiveness, being able to pull a lower cost retainer together by filling it full of 24-year-olds rather than 54-year-olds becomes um, attractive, but not necessarily for the right reasons.
0: Yeah, but that's that's true, except that in technology you're seeing huge amounts of acceptance that younger people do. it. Mark Zuckerberg famously came out in 2007 and said that Basically, young people are just smarter. So there is, there is, there is certainly exists in technology. There's, there's more to it than just cost. Yeah, but I have an
1: issue with any of those black and white viewpoints on almost any issue. I have worked with a bunch of you know twenty five year olds of that kind of age who've kind of really challenged my kind of worldview and thinking in a good way. Um, but I've also seen that in some of my kind of similarly aged peers. I think to come out with a statement like Mark did that's quite so black and white just shows that he hasn't thought about the issue carefully.
0: Well, he was probably young when he said it, younger. Possibly. Uh, I think, well, in the end, though, it does cut through. There's some empirical research that's saying, at least in the technology sector... That as much as we think that the startups, the young, the startups are young people, they're actually the successful startups are forty-five plus.
1: And certainly, as a fifty-year-old man, it would be nice to see as older folks getting some of the uh, credit nowadays. It definitely feels like there's less of that.
0: Well, it sounds like Kellogg is going to give you some. Another interesting report out uh, from Adweek in the US. NBC Universal, the television broadcaster, uh, John, has come out with some numbers saying that fewer ads. Give bigger uplift. They've basically introduced a new uh, Prime Pod format in broadcast, which basically gives 60 seconds of premium airtime instead of two to three minutes. And it looks like it might be working. Seems like common sense to me. Why does it not to the market? Uh, really interesting, Paul. And um, possibly, I think, the most interesting development of the whole
1: podcast today. Long been something I've been passionate about, about finding premium environments for advertising, especially in television, and starting to get under whether that can really work for advertisers. Because it certainly feels like there are too many ad breaks, too many ads in the break. And this work from NBC is really exciting. And it'll be interesting to see whether any of the Aussie media owners are kind of prepared to experiment with this type of format as well. Well, some
0: of the numbers they talk about is uh, program favor- favorability is up 28%, brand awareness is up 27%, brand interest up 25%, and purchase intent up 11%. So there's some decent numbers there. Interestingly, they offset against the fact that NBCU says that 80% of its Prime Pods were sold in the upfronts at a 75% premium. So it does come to, there's resistance in this market. I know that some broadcasters here have tried it, but it's all about price in the end.
1: And price has been the all-consuming obsession across, like, not just television, but, you know, digital channels as well. Uh, And it would be good to see, like, products like this starting to force a reassessment of the balance between price and efficiency and the actual effectiveness and business impact on advertising. The commoditization of advertising isn't necessarily a good thing when we step back and we think about business effects.
0: What would you need to see for you to pay more for your TV ads or any ad, basically, if it's got a better user experience, better viewer experience, less junk and clutter? What is it that you're looking for?
1: I mean, it will vary campaign to campaign, but some type of measure of effectiveness. And whether the media company does that on their own or whether we build partnerships between clients, agencies, and media owners that start to understand the effect of this type of change better. um, However that happens, that's what needs to happen. Uh, Otherwise, there'll be resistance to price premium, certainly in that order of magnitude, without evidentiary backing. But if this forces evidentiary backing into this and forces a more measurability and accountability in the kind of TV space, that's a great benefit just in itself.
0: Well, it's certainly needed in terms of the viewer experience, right? There's so much advertising in the breaks and the, the TV networks are no longer making a lot of money, by the way, so it's not necessarily about them being greedy. Now it's just simply about volume to meet a price requirement, and what's happening is we're pushing people away from advertising-supported formats, right? They're going to streaming services.
1: And in a world where even in kind of broadcast we can pause, skip, rewind, anything that removes that you know, or encourages the viewer not to do those things by making the ad break more attractive is a is a benefit to everybody.
0: I, I think the Australian market will probably f- follow the Americans and wait for a little bit more evidence before they they do something. I just there's something here. There's been some trials and it hasn't really uh, gravitated yet. Yeah,
1: well, I'd encourage them to be really front footed on this because they're currently you know falling behind. The things that look sexier and like feel more effective because they look more measurable. I'm still a huge fan of TV as a brand building mechanism, but it doesn't feel like the media owners are really being as innovative as they need to be.
0: A provocative uh, headline from Marketing Week in the UK, sack the client, not the agency. A very well-known global marketer by the name of Joe Trapodi, ex-Subway and ex-Coke and MasterCard, Came out in Marketing Week saying clients are essentially dysfunctional and they don't know what they want. In, in broad terms, he was he was pretty scathing on his colleagues. Uh, some of the criticism was around new CMOs coming in and changing the agency because of that is the form that's the the catalyst for better output. Uh, and we've seen that a lot in the past. Relevant here, do you think, John, in the Australian market?
1: Uh- relevant, I don't know if I'd catastrophize quite as much as this seems to to do but maybe that's just a way of getting people to read the article Uh, but no question as a new CMO um, reviewing your agency relationships at that point makes a lot of sense before you've built relationships with these people because once you start to really like the human beings at the agency they're a lot harder to fire at that point so doing it early in your tenure is the right thing to do if you genuinely want to it would be nice to see and to be sure that CMOs are checking that a review is necessary before they do that rather than doing that automatically. And, and I think there's a balance of that. I think there's some bad behavior. But I'm not entirely sure it's widespread, endemic. you know as soon as a CMO arrives, every agency
0: gets fired, but no question it happens. Uh, he, he also talks about his biggest pet peeve, Tripodi, that is, uh, being most senior people in, in big companies think an ad campaign is going to solve a broader business issue. Now, that doesn't sound quite right in the Australian market. There's a lot of senior... Well, you've got some thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like we're rapidly approaching the the opposite of that, where nobody thinks that advertising is effective at all anymore, perhaps due to the fact that we've kind of lost sight a little bit of how to deploy it. Um So maybe a little bit more of thinking that advertising might save the world might be helpful. Dysfunctional clients,
0: though, dysfunctional marketers, is that a byproduct of some other things? Yeah,
1: confused, overworked, challenged, overwhelmed with the amount of kind of choice and change they've got. Um, being distracted by the shiny new ball rather than focused on some of the kind of long-term truths about how marketing and advertising works. All that's true, and that certainly doesn't help our agency friends when clients busy dealing with all of that. Um, But a little bit more empathy on both sides is probably the right answer to how we kind of get
0: through this. So Digiday in the UK, another, another really interesting development that a lot of big advertisers are talking and doing is, um, this one's around Diageo, uh, setting up a uh, trusted marketplace, an online digital media trusted marketplace. Lots in here and lots of developments across a, a bunch of brands. This one, Diageo, is one of your old firms. There's a trend emerging here. What do you make of it? I'm, again, really
1: excited to start to see this. Um, when I was a brand manager back in the Victorian era, um, we used to talk about not just what channel the ad ran on, but what shows the ad ran on and where in the ad break the ad used to ring. So so quite a microscopic level of kind of media planning. And as we've moved into a programmatic world, that seems to have gone completely the other way on the pendulum to the don't really care where the ad's going to be. Just tell me that it's going, you know, into the black box So advertisers taking control of the media in which they put their advertising, I think is a discipline that's been missing for a while and great to see people like Diageo and will come on to what Unilever are doing, starting to take control of that programmatic long tail of online in a kind of more strategic way. I think this is a good example for us all to follow.
0: Well, they've reduced the number of publishers or, or digital media suppliers they're they're dealing with and they're putting big qualitative filters on who gets into that into that pool of suppliers. I think the AGO's numbers they talk about spending sixty million dollars more in the first half of last year. Uh, and uh, all the results, the the brand tracking results and return on investment uh, analysis is up. So less is more in this case.
1: And ties back to what we were talking about in the television space earlier, which is prepared to pay a premium for a premium environment that demonstrates premium effectiveness. There's a thread here that's emerging that we're starting to get back to thinking more carefully about the media choices we make with much more of an
0: effectiveness than an
1: efficiency lens. That's good news
0: for marketing. Some interesting uh, differences from from Diageo versus even, say, what Procter & Gamble is doing, where they are doing this trusted marketplace with their agencies. Many big advertisers are taking in-house and taking complete control. Diageo is sort of splitting the responsibilities between its agency partners and, in fact, the global media director at, at uh, Diageo, Isabel Massey, says that uh, it should be co-owned, what they're doing with their agencies. So there's some, you know, hybrid models, there's all sorts of, there's no one route to greatness.
1: But doing it with your agency makes sense to me, right? We're talking about what we'd call a short list, but it's actually quite a long list, right? It's got hundreds, if not kind of thousands of things on it. You need a partner to help you work through that. There's a fair amount of hard grunt work to do to get to these trusted environments. I think we should all be doing it. But no question there's there's a fair amount of hard slog to get there.
0: Well, it's probably a bit of good news for the agencies that have sort of somewhat been under the pump in in recent years, right? So they may still have a role yet. With luck. (laughs) With luck. Final one in the intelligence briefs today is Unilever doing basically the same thing as Diageo. I think there's a great quote here from uh, Keith Weed, the global CMO at Unilever, who, when talking about ad fraud and all the problems in the digital media supply chain, uh, he says bots don't eat a lot of Ben and Jerry's. It's a, it's a really quite pithy uh, observation. On Keith Weed
1: on, on the money as usual. Yes. Uh, yeah, one of my favourite marketers.
0: So again, they are uh, Diageo is talking about a trusted publishers network. They're vowing to cut out the bad actors in the digital supply chain and only spend with platforms and publishers that meet strict criteria. Now, the thing about this is uh, both Keith Weed and Mark Pritchard at Procter & Gamble have been talking about this for a few years. There's a bit of criticism now coming at them. That's going, There's a lot of talk here and you're still supporting the platforms that are doing some, you know, subversive things or some less effective things. Uh, your sense? Uh, I, I think it's difficult. And whilst I am suggesting that everybody
1: should be getting on this train... Uh, That doesn't minimize the amount of work it's going to be. And the fact that it almost inevitably leads to higher pricing at a cost per thousand or however you want to measure that basis. Uh, That's a bitter pill to swallow. You've got to get really much more certain that you're getting greater effectiveness out of it in order to persuade the
0: organisation that its prices are going to go up, Unilever is doing it mostly internally. They're doing some partnerships, but again, in the Australian market, uh, the scale's an issue. So, unless you're a Commonwealth Bank or Westpac, some 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 a uh, big spender, it's particularly hard to do internally inside the company without an agency support. There's lots of hybrid versions going on. I know ANZ. And I think PhD do some hybrid. You've got Qantas do that as well. Well that's gone more in-house. But scale's an issue here. So I'm not sure whether the whether the big you know, how much the big companies can go alone on this. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I would always recommend using an expert partner, wouldn't I? I'm in the business of being an expert
0: partner. Yes. Well put. So that's it for our intelligence briefs. There's a whole lot more at mi 3comau So now let's jump straight into this week's deep dive around user-generated content and whether it has peaked. Um, There's a whole bunch of things, John, that are uh, coming at UGC platforms and creators. Uh, Regulation is coming hard and fast at the platforms to limit what they're up to. Big advertisers seeing brand and societal risk, and that's interesting because it's just not brand anymore. They're seeing the broader risk to society, what's going on with some of the user-generated content. Uh, UGC creators are falling out with the platforms. They're struggling to make any money, which all means that UGC faces a reality check. And, and, and I guess this is where you uh, are not quite convinced, but we are looking at some big challenges for UGC in terms of pricing for advertisers and the and the audience availability and the quality of the audience. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, definitely if I was in the business of making far-right cat videos, um, this is of real concern. But when I put my advertiser hat on, um, this ties back to stuff we were talking about earlier in this kind of edition, Paul, which is it's again pushing towards the smaller number of more effective spaces and worrying less about the cheap long tail. So, yeah, I'm worried about this because I do think it means that, you know, prices are going to go up. If there's less supply in this UGC online content space, prices have to go up. It's very much a simple demand supply model. But whether the advertisers should be as concerned about rising prices... If the rising prices come with rising effectiveness, then that means as an advertiser, I'm less worried about this. If I was in the business of making user-generated content,
0: yeah, you should be you should be worried about this stuff because it's real. The issue, though, is that if you look at the Australian an Australian example where advertisers boycotted YouTube um, last month over the pedophilia uh, comments threads in in YouTube. They were off for a couple of weeks and then straight back on. And one of the uh, a really interesting argument made by, at the time, CEO of IPG, Media Brands Danny Bass, said, look, if you can buy a CPM on YouTube for $5 and you're paying $25, $30 for a professional publisher and $60 to $70 CPM for broadcast uh, video on demand, advertisers are going for the lowest cost. Uh, they're going to they're gonna go back to $5 because it's you, you can't beat it. So the issue there is, you know, how much are they prepared to pay Absolutely. They're hooked
1: on advertising crack, right? Right. Uh, and therefore, the pricing issue, I'm, a, you know, I'm not making light of that pricing issue, but there's a rebalancing coming. The other thing that's not clear about in the morning is, is whether advertisers are buying the long tail um, of this type of content in order to really get to the reach they need or whether they're really using it from a frequency perspective. If it's reach, if there's people I can't talk to without these environments, then, yeah, there's some real effectiveness stuff. But if this is more about repeat viewing of the same thing, again, I'm less concerned because what we've kind of learned in the last 10 years is that frequency is a lot less important from a brand salience perspective. Um, Frequency might be important just to get me to watch it once, but once I've watched it once, that's probably
0: enough. There's a lot more in that one. Well, that's it from us. Thank you, John Bradshaw. You can get all today's feeds and more at mi-3.com.au. We'll see you next week. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Jennifer Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Music by Matt Dwyer more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode.